Hello, and welcome to the Game On Podcast. My name is Adam Bello. I am the CEO and co-founder of Breakout EDU, but I'm also a father, a serial ed tech entrepreneur, and an advocate for positive change in the classroom. Each episode of the Game On Podcast is going to feature a new voice from someone who's making an amazing impact and helping to pave the way for the future of education. We're going to get to explore their ideas and opinions, as well as learn from those successes and failures from these amazing educational gurus. All right, let's get started. All right, welcome. So we're so excited and so lucky to be here today. I am joined with Gary Winnick. Now, Gary Winnick may not be a name that you know right off the top of your bat, but I guarantee you that you know a lot of the work that he has been uh, a part of over the last many years. I will tell you just on a personal note, before we get started here, I was just telling Gary, I am a huge fan of many of the titles that he was extremely influential in creating or co-creating. It is a thrill to be here. And Gary, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Well, we're going to get started. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, it's a gaming podcast, as we said, and play is really important for us here at Breakout. So I always like to start off and say, what's your favorite game to play when you were a kid? And then what's a game that you've been playing now, or in your case, maybe creating now? Um, doesn't have to be video games, could be whatever you want. Well, when I was a kid, they, they were using stone knives and bear skins. So, they were, <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, so we used to have family evening nights at my house. Um, you know, I have a brother and a sister and we used to, along with my parents, we used to play Monopoly a lot. You know, we played, I would say we probably did it for about six months and we kind of got bored with it. Mm-hmm. And in my early teens is when they first started having arcade games. So, I mean, Pong came out and my brother saved up, you know, all his money and bought one of those home Pong things that you attach to a TV set that went really slow, you know, just, yep. <laughs> and so that, and then finally we went to, I think, you know, something like ColecoVision where they had space invaders and things like that. But I remember going down and playing uh, pinball games and also, uh, I, I used to like abstract um, arcade games. I like Kicks and I like Tempest and those things. But um, I and I, the first game I remember um, when I went to New York because I moved from after I graduated from high school, I went to New York to actually work in the comic book industry. Was I had this thing called Death Race, where basically you drove around a car and you ran over pedest- little pedest- you know it was all little vector pedestrians and stuff. Uh, I didn't really start playing actual game games until I was working at Atari and at Atari, we were really at first doing um, convert home, home computer conversions for the Atari 400 and 800 from um, arcade games. So I had worked, um, I worked on dig Dug, I worked on um, actually donkey Kong for the Atari 800, the, you know, the conversion versions of the Atari 800 centipede, those things. Very cool. So, but in terms of things that I played myself, um, I really, like I said, I, I liked pinball games, more, actual pinball games more than I liked arcade games, at least initially. And then I got involved in the industry and I was too busy being involved in the industry. Uh, we played, you know, competitors games. We played Sierra games and things like that just to kind of, you know, get some you know comparison. And uh, as far as what I'm playing now, believe it or not, the thing that I play the most now is a game called Word Zapper. And what that is, is it's kind of a boggle type of game that was, I think, produced by Zynga years ago. Oh, and cool. it runs on my old iPad. And the only reason I haven't gotten rid of my first generation iPad is it still plays that game. 
And I play it every morning when I get up because it's sort of a cognitive function thing for me because I spend, you know, my doctor says spend some, you know, some time on something that sort of cognitive function related. So I, it's kind of, you know, it, the nice thing about it is it has, you know, thousands and thousands of combinations and I just, you know, play it every morning to try to sort of keep my, my brain a little bit more limber, otherwise turning into mush, which is the way it would be now. I hear you. I mean, my, my parents do the crossword every morning and I think it's the same uh, driver there. So yeah, we, we know games can be educational. That's, uh, (laughs) I mean, I've looked at, you know, the new monkey Island game and stuff like that because Ron and which was great. I, I, you know, I, I I really like the way it looks, you know, I like stylization. I mean, I do a lot of things that are, I've always preferred 2d animation and stylization to 3d. I've always preferred, the way something like Sleeping Beauty looks to the way mm-hmm. something like, you know, uh, I'll say even, even Toy Story looks or whatever. I've always admired the skill in 2D animation. I mean, the guy who did all the backgrounds in um, Sleeping Beauty was felt by the name of Ivan Earl, mm-hmm. just an amazing, amazing artist, sort of the father of what they call designed realism. I, I love that stuff. When we did Loon, it was actually um, somewhat based on that look. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember Loom well. I feel mm-hmm. like all of the, and at Monkey Island, obviously, or Day of the Tentacle, like had a very different stylistic look. And sure. even some of the Sierra games, I know that they went towards that Disney look at the very end towards, uh, I don't remember which King's Quest it was, seven or eight or something, like tried to take that Disney look. Um, keeping with that, and I want to get to your bio, which I think will make the art conversation yeah. make more sense. But before that, you know, you just sparked something in me. And I, did you get to see the new Spider-Man uh, across the Spider-Verse, or have you seen any of it? I've of only seen the trailer for it. It's it's pretty it's, interesting looking. It's pretty amazing. I mean, for someone yeah. who loves style, they're playing with so many different things sure. in there. It's fascinating. But um, anyway. I'm I, sure I, I'll see it when it's on, you know. The, the problem is nowadays with the internet, and, you know, I, I mean, I have, you know, Hulu and Netflix and Max and Paramount Plus, and I, I mean, there's so much stuff to look at. It's just insane. You yep. Know? Well, I it does come out August eighth, so I I have yeah. it pre-ordered. And my kids are ready to sure. go. <laughs> um. Well, awesome. I mean, it it's it must well, one be- other thing. You know, in the case yeah, of, of something like Maniac Mansion, rather than being driven by style, we were driven by the limitations of what we could do. You know, so basically character set and pixel art and everything else drove those things more than style. The stylistic choices were basically to do this. For example, the decision to do the large heads was just because you couldn't see what they looked like. Otherwise, you know, those kinds of things. (laughs) Eventually it's now you can kind of do anything stylistically, but in those those early days, you were really driven by the limitations of the graphics. But I think that the limitations of graphics, and I know we're, we're kind of tangenting, but I I love this conversation because it it relates so much to what, my team is working on now. And I I kind of think about it like the people that are driving a lot of our game development at our company um, were former teachers. And so the limitations are the fact that we are learning new skill sets as we go. And so I think that by not focusing on high tech graphics with all sorts of animation and movement, the story and the game itself and the mechanics of the game shine even more. And with Maniac Mansion in particular, what I remember most about that game, and I haven't played Maniac Mansion, the original, in, in probably about 15, 20 years, but I remember playing it many times on different platforms. I remember the humor. I remember the cleverness of the mechanic of switching between the three different characters. So many of the things that were there, the graphics, although I could pick a, I could pick out a, a still from Maniac Mansion out of that lineup, 
sure. the game itself was driven so much because of the limitations, I think, because you focused on the quality of the content. Well, I, I mean, definitely Ron and I, I believe, had sort of a vision of what we wanted. Well, it evolved. And once it, we kind of, you know, we weren't sure in, in the beginning what we were going to do, but as it evolved, then we got pretty clear. And, you know, we, both of, our, of us have sort of the same, I'm going to use the word, you know, twisted sense of humor, so to speak. Sure. So a lot of it was driven by that. A lot of it was driven by the fact that, you know, we liked a lot of things in popular horror movies that we thought were ridiculous and stuff like that. But one other thing too is it takes place in this house pretty much because we wanted a, a contained area to keep it in. You know, we wanted to do something that we, that we felt was manageable. We didn't realize, or Ron didn't realize, you know, by having it be five different protagonists or whatever, uh, yeah, whatever that we or, or, and multiple endings that we were sort of opening a can of worms that turned into a huge, uh, you know, just, it, it's amazing that it, that it didn't crash all the time. Yeah. But it was brilliant. I mean, the mechanic was brilliant and I think the humor and it's, and something it's funny because when I was talking about this idea for what we're calling Breakout Plus, this this new type of game, um, I talked about it with the team, and, and they had not really played a lot of the point-and-click adventure games. So we had sent around a um, a file I found of a walkthrough or a playthrough video, rather, of uh, The Secret of Monkey Island. One of the things I always reference was like when we started getting further beyond like the puzzle itself, the mechanic of getting from one place to another or whatever, um, I referenced the, the hamster in the microwave. And I started talking about like those types of things that make the game memorable, that make it, you know, we're, we're an education company. We're not putting hamsters in microwaves, but I, I use that as the example of like, we should allow the users to do all sorts of well, different things. Uh, have you ever heard Ron talk about that? Because no, I haven't. Uh, effectively what that, what, what it really came down to was when, the, when David and he were wiring up the scum system, when we were doing, I was doing animation or whatever, we were just doing, you know, we were doing things that we didn't, we don't have to be like kind of like a dollhouse where you could do everything. So, you know, the faucets worked, you know, yep. some of the, the like, you know, the, the, the oven worked, you know, those, the microwave worked. And so um, I think it was, you know, David, David and I were sort of, you know, spitballing something one day and, and David was, you know, between the two of us, we just decided to, you know, uh, well, what would happen if you put the, mo- the hamster in the microwave? And I did, Ron wasn't even in the room and, Ron, and and Dave and I literally took 15 minutes and did this thing and wired it up. And David took it into Ron, you know, Ron's office and said, go ahead, put the hamster in the microwave. Now go ahead, turn it on. And then we all just laughed our asses off. You know what I mean? But we yeah. left it in there. And that was part of the scum system where you could just basically wire stuff up real dynamically and see how it worked. And Ron tells that story. So it's pretty interesting. That's that's incredible. I did not know that story, so that's uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Well, we'll we'll move on. I think we'll kind of we covered some of the ground, but I, I'm really excited mm-hmm. to kind of dig into uh, our level two question, which is all about your history, your origin story. Everyone has one. I feel like we've kind of hit on a few of the things that you've done, but we you mentioned comics. We've mentioned a couple of, of things sure. you've done. Um, so, what kind of put you on the path to become who you are and doing the work that you've done? Well. In, in high school, um, I had a, I've had a love of comics ever since I could remember. So, you know, I, le- I actually learned how to read by reading comics. That's how I learned how to read. Because it was easier, at least for me at the time, to read Spider-Man comics than it was to read, you know, um, in, you know an English text or whatever they wanted me to read. I'd much rather do that. So 
while doing that. And I guess I had, you know, some innate artistic, you know, um, ability. So I really decided that's what I wanted to do. So I used to copy comic books when I was, you know, from the time I was about 11 years old, I copied comics. And then when I graduated from high school, which was in 1972 to date myself, I had two very good friends, Frank Sorocco and Brent Anderson, who are both in the comic book industry now. Um, and we decided at the time, you know, if you wanted to become, you know, be in the movies or whatever, you'd go to LA. If you wanted to work in the comic book industry, you went to New York. That's where Marvel was. That's where DC was. So we had a friend who was working at the time in um, the industry, a fellow by the name of Carl Potts. He was working as an assistant to Neil Adams, who I'd mentioned before, who was just an amazing talent. He was, you know, probably the most famous comic book artist in the world at the time that I went. And he had a studio on um, uh, 42nd Street between 5th and Madison. And um, we showed up there one day. <laughs> And, and Carl kind of brought, you know, brought us in. My friend Frank had relatives in the area. So we had somebody to stay with in New Jersey, I believe at the time. And we just, Neil couldn't have been more gracious. He took us into his studio. And the studio was a place where, although it did a lot of comic book work, it also did a lot of, it, it did a, a bunch of advertising work to really, you know, pay the bills. So while we were there, we kind of learned about storyboarding and we learned about doing animatics. They were doing what an animatic is, is basically kind of a glorified storyboard that's sort of animated that they, you know, that an advertising agency shows the client in order to sell them on the concept of actually making a real commercial. Then we were working, you know, for the for I'm trying to remember the name of the agencies, but we basically worked on Kool-Aid and Purina Cat Chow and Breck Hair Shampoo and all of these things. I remember we actually, Jimmy Carter was running for president at the time uh -huh. and we did a, a coloring book, a, the Jimmy Carter coloring book for <laughs> the Jimmy Carter, you know, presidential campaign. I remember, and I remember meeting Jimmy Carter for like, the thing That's that cool. I remember about Jimmy Carter is that he had the biggest, whitest smile of anybody I ever saw in my life. <laughs> and, you know, so, and we worked in, in, you know, there and, Along with that, we were doing comics. Neil was doing all of the covers for all of the DC books at the time, most of them. So I remember doing coloring on comic books, so, you know, action comics, Superman, Batman, those kinds of things. And then we were there for about, oh, seven months. And then I came back from there and ultimately we opened up our own studio in the San Jose area. And that kind of led from one thing to another finally like kind of getting into the um the, the computer i'm gonna say the home computer revolution was heating up and so atari was there in fact i was offered a job with atari and a company called imagic the same day oh wow and imagic was doing game cartridges for the atari and they were just going berserk but i really decided i would rather go to work for atari because they were the actual manufacturer of the hardware and i did that for about seven months. And then my friend, Charlie Kellner said, Hey, George Lucas is starting up a game development group. Want to come, they need an artist. Are you interested? <laughs> and I said, no, no. I mean, basically, <laughs> you know, how could you turn that down? And I was there for 10 years. That's incredible. And that's, so, I mean, your time at LucasArts and that was the, at the start, right? Like that was, you were there the from first the beginning? Thing, the first thing I did was I did this thing called the Jaggy Monster. We had two games. 
we had Ballblazer and Rescue on Fractalus, which originally had been called Behind Jaggy Lines, because David Fox thought it was sort of this play on, on you know, the pixelated, you know, uh, jaggy bars that were in the uh, cockpit. <laughs> so, um, because everything was fairly pixelated. And Lauren Carpenter, who was in the, uh, compu- you know, Pixar, which became Pixar, the computer graphics group, had, was, was working on basically um, doing real-time fractal rendering. He, he was doing a um, uh, he was doing a fractal landscape for uh, this thing called the Genesis effect for the uh, Wrath of Khan Star Trek movie uh-huh. where they fire this missile at the at this planet and terraform it. Yep. And Lauren was sort of involved in doing the fractals for that, and basically he was sharing an office with David, who um, was working with an Atari 800. And I think there was something like, "You think you could get." fractal um geometry engine to run on this thing and everybody was like no and lauren took the thing home for a night and it had her running the next i mean that was the level of people you know those people were just incredible that's amazing, that's amazing. and from that david actually created the um, rescue on fractalus and at that time i mean you look back at those graphics they're very primitive now but at the time people were like looking under the atari 800 looking for like a real computer that was rendering it in real time that kind of thing. And the first thing I did was this thing called the Jaggy Monster, which is basically this alien that comes up and pounds on the windshield and breaks it and kills you. I don't know if you're familiar with the game at all or not. I, I very, very vague recollection. Yeah, I mean, it was actually George's idea where uh, the um, goal of the game rescue was to lend. First of all, it was you didn't have guns originally because David was sort of this pacifist type. Uh-huh. Like you flew around and rescued pilots. And George came in to play it, and he's like, where's my guns? And David was like, well, you know, I want to be pacifistic and flat. And David was like, and George was like, put a gun on the thing, you know? <laughs> so, but you flew around and rescued these pilots. And so it was George's idea, I believe, where one, every so once in a while, one of the pilots would actually be an alien in disguise. And it would, you know, jump up and like break the glass of your, um, you know, spaceship and let the toxic atmosphere in and kill you. And you can only tell it had like a little green head or something, you know, and okay. it only happened on the higher levels. That's it was considered cool. one of the first jump scares in a computer game. Oh, awesome. And then what was, what was after that? Was that moving on to Maniac Mansion? Well, or? so let's see, we did Ball Blazer and Rescue. The next two we did were Coronas Rift and Eidolon. Okay. I know Coronas Rift. Yeah. Uh, Noah Falstein designed uh, Coronas Rift and I was work I, at the time I worked on everything in the very beginning. I worked on everything. I was the only artist they had. And then eventually we, we started hiring on people and we brought in contractors, mostly people I knew That's people awesome. like Ken Macklin, people like that. And then after that, I think, you know, part of the problem with this is there's so much of it. It's hard for me to remember it chronologically. Sure. So as I say, forgive me if I kind of screw this up, but we then did a, a game the first kind of graphic adventure we did was actually a game based on the film Labyrinth. Mm-hmm. Jim Henson. And because um, at that time we weren't allowed to do any, you know, one of the reasons we went there was we thought we were going to do Star Wars games. That was like a huge attraction for everybody because Lucasfilm Star Wars games. We all love Star Wars. Sure. When we got yeah. there, we found out we weren't going to be able to do Star Wars games because Star the licenses for Star Wars games were so lucrative they would license them out to some other company and get paid millions of dollars up front and not have to spend any money and, and just, you know, collect a royalty. So we were told effectively, you're not going to do star Wars games. 
we were not going to do Indiana Jones games, any of that stuff. We were going to do, which actually was was amazing for us when you think about it. It was like you guys guys get to do original content. Yep. In fact, you have to do original IP because you can't use any of the IP that Lucasfilm owns because it's being, you know, it's over here generating revenue at another company out of the licensing division. So because of that, that was actually a godsend in a way, because then we were able to do things like Maniac Mansion and Loom and Zach McCracken and all of those things. The first, as I say, so what happened was because Labyrinth was really a, a combination, I think it was Jim Henson's group that was doing it. Um, they allowed us to actually build out, <clears throat> pardon me, a Labyrinth game. And so that was sort of the first graphic adventure we really did. And rather than having point and click, David had this thing, which was like kind of a, a wheel that, sh- that I don't know if you've ever played the game or familiar I, with I it. I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen the wheel. It's kind of a, 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 a you know, it has this revolving wheel kind of thing, yep. which I, I would say is kind of a precursor to the whole point and click thing, sort of. It's interesting because we, you know, I keep on referencing this, this thing that we're working on internally. And I, we've looked at obviously, you know, going back to Zork and I I actually have it as reference here, you know, this point and click book that uh, you're referenced in as well as many, many others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating to see how, I mean, Sierra had their system evolve differently, obviously scum. And I'd love to kind of, to hear from you how that developed, because I think well, Ron, it really came down to the fact that Ron hated the parser <laughs> more than anything else. Ron, Ron is playing a C, you know, was playing Sierra games. If you listen to Ron's sort of talks about it, there's several talks, but you know, he's basically playing the game because we weren't really sure what we were doing. We knew we were going to make this maniac mansion game. He and I kind of, you know, he was, he was brought on to do the conversion of uh, the, the C64 version, I believe of, uh, Coronas Rift, mm-hmm. I believe is what it was. And, uh, and he was brought on because he was a, he, he was a Commodore. He, he knew the Commodore because he had written a program called graphics basic for the Commodore. So he was a contractor doing the conversion in those days, you know, you, you really did conversions in the sense that nothing was portable. Graphics yep. weren't portable. Nothing was portable. <laughs> so, um, he was doing the C64 conversion of Coronas Rift, I believe. And he and I used to hang around in the evenings and talk about, you know, what we wanted to do. And so we would, you know, we had, as I said, a similar twisted sense of humor. And so we decided we really wanted to do a comedy horror game. Because he and I would go see these, you'd go see a movie and it was, you know, the typical kind of, you know, slasher film where, you know, kids, you know, go into an old old house and go into different rooms. They split up immediately. You know what I mean? It's like Cabin Cabin in the Woods is a good kind of, you know... uh, satire of that and uh we just thought that was funny as hell so we decided we were going to make one of those and we had this big kind of um board game version that we created at the house and i had these plastic uh, sheets of acetate where i would kind of have different arrows and i'd overlay these sheets of that clear plastic acetate and it would show kind of where you know, how everything connected and where the objects were. And, you, you know, we had cards and stuff and you picked up all this stuff, but we really didn't know what we were going to do. And then Ron, I think went off over Christmas vacation one time and uh, his, his nephew, nephew or cousin had a copy of King's quest. Mm-hmm. And Ron was like, of course, it'll be a graphic. It'll be an adventure game. But he was really frustrated because you can see the, th- you know, it's a bush and you're typing in, you know, pick up, you know, 
bush and he goes, I don't know what bush is. And you pick up shrub. I don't know what shrub is. Pick up tree. I don't know what tree is. And Ron's like, it's on the screen. It's right there. I should be able to just point at the thing and pick it up because it's right in front of me. So that's kind of, you know, uh, you know, part of the evolution of that, which is brilliant. I think Ron's frustration with the parser. I mean, we wanted to get as close to, I'm going to say, you know, uh, a simulation, you know, not, not the way, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, you know, Sim City is or something like that, but basically a simulate, a simulated, you know, where you had a reality, as I said, like a dollhouse where, you know, things worked, you know, and, one of the things is, you know, in the early Sierra games, you could die pretty easily. And in real life, you don't die, you know, unless, you, you know, we would say things like, okay, if if there's like the space shuttle and you're standing under the space shuttle's engines and it's going three, two, you know, okay, if you die because of that, you're an idiot. You know what I mean? <laughs> but you, as David said, in Sierra game, you know, it's been referenced before, but if you pick up a piece of glass, you cut yourself and die. You know, right. you bleed to death and die. Right. And and effectively, most people can pick up a piece of glass in the real world and not cut themselves and bleed to death. Right. <laughs> so, so a quick question on that, because this is this is yeah. interesting, like um, not to go back to the hamster idea, but like we, we're at the end of our first game that we'll release. And it's um, but our process was build out the puzzles. We knew the story structure and then we went back and then we came up with the dialogue or the or the narrative lines of like what happens at each interaction. How did you guys plan that? Was it more story focused in the beginning or? Um, probably very story focused in the beginning. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah. And then, and then David, uh, now if we're talking about Maniac Mansion, I mean, I'm talking about Maniac Mansion. I talk about a Thimbleweed Park, which are similar processes in a way because the teams are the same teams almost. Sure. But um, in the case of Maniac Mansion, Ron and I pretty well had the whole story figured out. We had, you had the locations figured out and, and, you know, so you were running around doing things. And as you ran into people, you, we sort of realized people had to be able to communicate in a way. So a lot of that stuff was written by Ron and David. I might have had something to say about it, but generally most of the dialogue was written by Ron and David. You know, we kind of knew what was going to happen very loosely. In the case of Thimbleweed Park, for example, the first iteration of Thimbleweed Park we, we released, it you couldn't actually talk, you know, you could talk to, uh, an NPC, you could talk to another character, right. but you, the, you could not actually not talk, you know, the group that you could switch between could not talk amongst themselves. And people really complained about that. And so we actually, the beauty of the internet, the beauty of, you know, doing stuff now is you can just go back in and patch it. I mean, if you feel it's worthwhile. Yeah. So that's what we did. Which is awesome. Yeah. You've been pushing or, you know, had pushed an update yeah. and stuff, which is fantastic. Um, I, I mean, I, I and it cost, all this. The other thing is, all this stuff costs money. That's the other problem. Is you have to you have to trade off a lot of things because you're going well. I I can either you know have uh, four people in this game, or I can have two people that talk. You know what I mean, or whatever. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do? Yeah, it's interesting, and I think that like as you've pioneered that that system, I feel like Maniac Mansion is ambitious for multiple reasons, multiple players. I think I've I've always looked at that as like. Wow, you know, for for <laughs> for being the first Scum Engine game to have the ability to switch between different characters and control people at the same time is what Ron Ron was worried we were going to get fired. You know what I mean? It was <laughs> like basically we were doing this thing. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were trying to get it done. We were late, you know, that kind of thing. And 
he was just like, he was just trying to not get fired. You know what I mean? But he had, but they had already gone down that road so far. I mean, if you've heard the stories, which you might have or not, is that Ron started just coding the thing in 6502 or whatever he was coding, mm-hmm. it, you know, and, and it was basically, um, this is going to take forever. And Chip Morningstar, who was our tools guy, said, well, why don't you create a scripting language? And I'll work. So, you know, SCUM, and everybody, most people know SCUM stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion is what SCUM stands for. And in fact, we, we had all of, you know, mucus and phlegm and bile. We were naming basically all these things after bodily fluids and stuff like that. So, yep. but, <laughs> but it was, you know, they had started going down the road of just, Ron was just trying to program the thing and realizing that it wasn't going to work. And that's kind of, where, you know, with Chip's help, they came up with the whole, you know, scripting language concept and sort of went from Which there. Which is brilliant. I mean, it, it, I think it opened up the door to the entire success of, of the company going sure. forward. Um, well, that's a good, I mean, you just mentioned a couple of things that I think brings us to our level three questions, which is about challenges, right? So sure. what what is the biggest challenge or obstacle you faced, whether it be in development process or in design or, or whatever it is? I feel like you've mentioned a few that are technical. Then there's things like time and budget. Well, what's a challenge that you can remember overcoming? Well, I mean, it kind of depends how far back you go because you today's <laughs> challenges are different than the ones I had 30 years ago or 20 or 35 years ago. I mean, when I first started out for, you know, before even being in the, in the computer industry, it was just, I was kind of, I felt I was sort of by myself. There was no community because there was no internet. So you didn't know who to talk to. Or, I mean, you just kind of, it was sort of that thing where, you know, you kind of, fumble around like molecules and you maybe bump into the right molecule to sort of, you know, if you're an oxygen molecule, you, you know, you can, you can form water if you like bump into the right, you know, hydrogen molecules or whatever. It was sort of like that in that there was not really the community that there is today. And today we just have, you know, you, you can find somebody to talk to about anything. So that was more of a challenge certainly than it is today, but that was probably one of the greatest challenges I had in the beginning was just not being able to, you know, connect with the right people or, you know, or try to figure out how to do that. Um, You know, aside from the fact that, you know, at software companies, once again, um, Lucasfilm was very different. Lucasfilm is kind of an anomaly when it comes to software companies, because most software companies, certainly when I worked at Atari, when I first there and other places I went on to, they were very much driven by the marketing departments as opposed to the creative people at Lucasfilm, the creative people, basically we decided we wanted to make something and we just made it. The marketing department had to figure out how to sell it. We weren't being told, you know, you got to make like, you know, you know, movies about, you know, jaws comes out and then you got to do a shark movie, you know what I mean? Or whatever. We weren't being told that kind of stuff. We were basically told, you know, your smart guys figure out something interesting. I think you. I don't know uh, if I answered the question or not. But. No, I mean, listen. I, I I think it speaks to you. You mentioned two things. One, I think, is the challenge of. Uh, there's two things that I, I latched onto yeah. there. One is the fact that your ability to create drove the process as opposed to a directive, like oh, make a movie for this, make a game for that. Yeah. I think that's incredible. The molecules bumping out and and kind of connecting with people that either challenge you and push you forward or are like minded enough to kind of gel with. Is that, do you feel like that the first time you overcame that is when you met Ron or is it other people before that? Or? Oh, um, it, w- it was before that because um, I really, the first people I met really were more in the comic book industry. Mm-hmm. 
So it's I the mean, friends you mentioned before. I had already met people, you know, I, I was already working at Lucas. I was working at Lucasfilm as a full-time employee when I met Ron. Ron came on. Now, the thing I will say about this is that Ron and I really gelled as friends and he was somebody. So it was incredible in that, you know, he and I, we were kind of at the same point in our lives to a certain degree and that we were both around the same age. We had the same kind of interests and stuff. And the thing about Ron is Ron is one of the most brilliant people I know. He's also one of the hardest working people I know. I'm going to, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot when I say this, but he works, he's a way, way harder worker than I am. If you know what I mean, in terms of, you know, I, I, you know, he likes to have fun and everything, but that guy is a working maniac. You know what I mean? He just works really hard. And, uh, you know, I admire that. And I'm, I used to do it when I was younger. You know, we all used to stay up all night long. If you're in the computer industry, you stayed up all night long, you know, and you basically drank Coca-Cola and ate pizza and hamburgers and stuff, all this stuff that was really (laughs) bad for you. Sure. And that's kind of the way it was. You just stayed up all night, you know, crunch time. You just worked and worked and worked. I, at my age, I won't give that away, but I, one of the reasons I moved to North Carolina is I have a much more sedate pace of life than I had when I was in in Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know, I, I work hard and I like working, but I kind of do what I want to do. And generally speaking, I'm not up till like, you know, all night long working on something. I, I think that, you know, it's funny. I think you mentioned like when you're trying to get a project over the line, yeah. you know, whether it's, you know, a group maniac mansion, whatever, whatever it is that you have worked on, where I'm sure there were days where it's pizza and up to three and, you know, get up again at five. At Lucasfilm all the time. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure. Maniac Mansion all the time, all day long, all day long, all night long. Yeah. Know? I mean, you've more than you've more than carved the path and paid your dues. I think it, at least the people I work with, you know, there is no directive here at our company to be like work, you know, get this done at, a, at any cost. And, you know, I think culturally things have changed. I think there's also, you know, but I do like to surround myself with people that are driven because they are challenging themselves. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get it done. I'm so excited about it. And I think that's evident in the quality of work that you've been a part of. And, you know, I think it's one of those things where it's like, if people love what they do, they give it their all as much as they can. And, you know, you, you've certainly uh, put in many years of, of staying up late, eating pizza to <laughs> yeah. take it slow. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. My wife would rather I not do that now. I, I trust me. I, I get it. <laughs> um, well, Moving on to our level four question, it's about passion. Um, what are you most passionate about right now, learning or sharing yourself? Well, I, I mean, uh, sort of two things. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I am very interested in the technology part uh, and basically taking things kind of into the digital online world. I'm also very interested in the traditional side. So my background is kind of in the traditional side and I, you know, I, I still draw. I mean, the way I draw is still like, you know, so I just draw on paper with a pen, pencil, or rather a pen, and I scan that stuff and then I color it all digitally. And actually I have a, a company that I've been trying to get off the ground called Comic Active. And in fact, you can go to the website comicactive.com and look at, we have a demo that David Fox and I built with David Fox, myself and Mark Ferrari built. That's awesome. But we're still, but we're, you know, we were, we worked on it before um, COVID and we almost had like, uh, I said, hooked a couple of big fish and then COVID happened and everything went to hell. So we built our demo. I'm going to say, you know, a fairly high cost to myself and it's sitting up there 
and that's something I would love to do. It's basically a, um, it's, it's sort of a, uh, hybrid graphic adventure, digital comic book. So check that out when you have a chance. And I would love to hear from anybody who was interested in funding something like that. That's awesome. Um, and then the other part of it is just continuing to work in comics in general. So um, I'm trying to sort of get to that next generation in kind of uh, visual storytelling. And that's sort of the current path that I'm on right now. If you look at my website, I have a website, GaryArt.net. You can see a lot of sort of the comic book work that I did there. I did a number of comics. Uh, most recently, I did a book for a company called Red Five, which um, yep. is called Bad Dreams. I did that for them. Um, so I'm still doing kind of traditional comics, but I am trying to, to take it in sort of that next level of kind of, it's that weird kind of, I'm going to say meld of comics, um, NFTs, which I have a whole other kind of, you know, uh, baggage and feeling about, but it's something that interests me and, um, you know, sort of the development of art and an art form on, you know, in the digital world. So that's kind of what I'm interested in. And then I'm also interested in just sort of effectively possibly teaching some of that to people because I'm at that stage in my career where I'd like to sort of impart some of this. So the area that I live in, there is um, Art Institute that's local in the Elkin area where I live in North Carolina that I might be doing some stuff with. I don't know yet, but that's amazing. And I'd like to, I'd like to teach and I'd like to sort of impart that to, you know, I will say the next generation of creative visual storytellers. So there you, there you have it, you know, because it's, it's just fun to, to sort of, it's, I'm lucky. I've had a career that is, that I've had fun at and, you know, I have no complaints. That's incredible. I mean, I love, I, I love looking at your, you know, the, the career you're, you're talking about your early days in comic art now coming as almost a return to form, still doing, you know, felt tip drawings, and doing a blend of digital, but then thinking about like the art design and direction you had to, you were forced to go in with Manic Mansion. Well, well like pixelated. I, <laughs> I was first working in the um, game development group, game development. So, like, I don't know if you can see this. So, oh, wow. those are the character sketches I did for Maniac Mansion. And then this is what I had to do. That's amazing. So, actually, I. I had to actually draw this stuff on grid paper. We had no scanners at the time. Uh huh. And then I would meticulously by hand with a, uh, a program, which was a, um, actually the way it worked is you had a joystick on the Atari 800 at the time. Um, we, we went a little bit further on the, in the C64, but it was still, you had a joystick and you use, and when you push the fire button, it plotted a point on the screen. <laughs> And then I didn't have a magnify function. I had, you know, those magnification lamps, you know, with a big. Yeah, yeah, yeah with a big glass. Uh, I used to have one of those attached to the side of my monitor. It was a monitor and I would swing it down in front of my monitor. And that was my magnify function. And then I'd swing it back out of the way. And you go pixel at one pixel at a time? One pixel at a time. Oh the other thing gosh. I did is I would draw on plastic, you know, acetate. Uh -huh. And then I would tape that to the front of my screen. Um was one of the characters in um, the Eidolon. And it, you can see that it's on a piece of plastic. Yep. And what I would do is I would draw this with a Sharpie, and then I would tape it to the front of my screen, and then I would plot it and sort of look at and move the thing. And then no scanners, you know, nothing. So that those were the good old days. 
But I, I mean, again, like that, that to me is the most fascinating piece that you can have traditional artistic talent, development, skill, a career in this, pioneer this completely different aspect of it, and then be able to swing back on the other side and dabble in both, which is wonderful. Yeah. I mean, now I, you know, I have a giant scanner on my desk. I can scan, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm sure. 11 by 17. I draw these things as I say, I just draw these on paper. I scan these and then I color them in Photoshop, but Amazing. I do everything by hand <laughs> on paper first, then scan. I mean, traditional anim, it's more and more like traditional animation. It's not, you know, where you're building out a 3d model and stuff like that. I mean, I, I think that there, that's becoming once again, more and more, trans all these all these things are converging you know and with ai on top of that we have ai doing it on top of that i mean it's just crazy well that goes to you know we can dig into that conversation we started with off air which was talking about like um kind of uh, movies that allow you to play a movie and kind of pull them together i feel like ai will have a whole Mm -hmm. uh, you know will make that even more possible quickly but um I guess our level five question comes back to advice. You've obviously worked for a long time in this career in many different facets. What's the best career advice or advice that you've gotten in general that you can share with our audience? Okay. Yeah. I, I, it's actually, I have an interesting story about that. So when I was working for Neil Adams, who I said was this just fabulous, famous comic book artist, I, I actually sat at, you know, in his studio, I sat at a desk, desk next to his. And one day he walked in. And he said to me, I have a gift for you. And he handed me a brand new eraser. And he said, never be afraid to use this. And I consider that one of the best pieces of advice I ever got in the industry. That's amazing. I love that. I love that. Yeah, we, uh, our, our tagline, we have unlocked the love of learning, but it's also yeah. the company that I said it's based on the escape room. I, I was explaining that to you earlier. It's all about failing forward. Like, don't be afraid to try something. Because if yeah. you get it wrong, you'll be able to do I, it. I mean... One of the things wrong, you know, iteration, one of the things yep. wrong, part, what, part of the problem that people have in, in industries, creative industries, but any kind of industry where you've invested a bunch of your time doing something and you've worked really hard at it is you're loath to change it. You're loath to give it up. And what you should be as fluid in that you should be as fluid in that as possible. You should be able to sort of recognize when something can be better and recognize that if you have to basically throw away, you know, I'll say everything but the bones or even the bones, if that's going to improve what you do, if, if you can certainly manage to do it, you need to be able to have sort of the ability, sort of the mindset that you can do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely wonderful advice. Um, I know you mentioned before where we could find you, Gary. So you mentioned comic active. Um, you mentioned your site. What, what's the name of your personal website again? It's GaryArt.net, so G-A-R-Y-A-R-T.net. Wonderful, wonderful to get time with you. And, and again, I, I, the eight-year-old or 10-year-old or however old I was at the time cannot believe I'm having this conversation because I, I enjoyed oh, please. immensely all of the, the work that you had created. It really was a giant thank part of my, uh, of my youth. Yeah, thank you. you know. I mean, I, I will say, and, I, and I've talked yeah. about it several times, it, it has informed not just the fond memories, but it's informing what we choose to work on today at this company. So uh, I, I, th- I think that's great. A lot. I, I, and, and, and I'll say that back to you. I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. It, um, all right, Gary, it's been great to have you here. So until the next time, everyone game on. <laughs>